Hi, this is Rachel Hine in Hannah Langdell, Duke Plastic Surgery Residence on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for yearly in-service examinations. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after our podcast for a brief message from our sponsors. Today, we'll be continuing our quick hit series on eyelid reconstruction. Hannah, you wanna get us started? Sure, we'll start by going through some of the anatomy. So there are both an anterior and a posterior lamella. The anterior lamella consists of the skin and orbicularis and the posterior lamella consists of the tarsus and conjunctiva. And then the layers of the upper eyelid are important to know. And these are the skin and the orbicularis and there's pretarsal, preceptal and orbital. Then the orbital septum, the upper lid fat compartments, the levator muscle, Mueller's muscle, and the conjunctiva. Then for layers of the lower eyelid, it's very similar, skin, orbicularis, tarsus, lower lid retractors, the capsulopalpebral muscle, the inferior tarsal muscle, and then while the Whitnell's ligament is in the upper eyelid, Lockwood's ligament surrounds the retractors as they become the aponeurosis. And then the middle lamella or the septum holds the eyelid position in place and emphasizes the orbital malar depression so you can release and transpose the fat. The tarsal plate is approximately 12 to 15 millimeters in height in the upper lid and is the site of attachment for Mueller's muscle and the levator. The tarsal plate in the lower lid is four to 10 millimeters in height and the inferior margin is continuous with the capsulopalpebral fascia. The tear trough ligament is an osteocutaneous ligament between the palpebral and orbital portions of the bicularis. This is important to release during lower eyelid blepharoplasty if the patient has a tear trough deformity. Uh, in terms of sensory innervation, the lacrimal nerve, which is a branch of V1, supplies the superior lateral upper eyelid. The infratrochlear nerve supplies the medial upper and lower eyelid. And the infraorbital nerve, which is the branch of V2, supplies the lower eyelid. And finally, in terms of motor function, the levator attaches to the tarsal plate and normal excursion is 12 to 16 millimeters. And this is innervated by cranial nerve three, the oculomotor nerve. Mueller's muscle provides two to three millimeters of elevation and is innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. The intercanthal obicularis or pretarsal, which is innervated by the buccal branch, uh, is important for blinking lower lid tone in the pumping lacrimal gland. The extracanthal orbicularis or the orbital fibers, which is supplied by the zygomatic branch, is important for eyelid closure, squinting, and animation. And again, Whitmall's ligament in the upper eyelid and Lockwood's ligament in the lower eyelid are fascial thickenings that support the globe and fuses with the capsulopalpebral fascia, which inserts into the tarsus. Rachel, do you want to take it from here? That <laughs> yeah, was that quite was a lot. A, that was a lot. So I know we went over a lot of this on our eyelid talk, but we'll just go over this again because these are frequently tested. But the upper fat compartments of the eye consist of the roof or the retroorbicularis oculus fat. Um, there's two compartments, the medial, which is the nasal fat, this is paler yellow, in a central or darker yellow fat that is separated by the superior oblique tendon. The lacrimal gland takes up the space that, that would be the lateral fat pad that we see in the lower lid. And in the lower lid, there's the SUF, the suborbicularis oculi fat, 
There's three compartments, medial, central, and lateral. And remember that the medial and central are separated by the inferior oblique tendon, which we're commonly tested on. Um, and that can be, it'll be in the form of a question about uh, some kind of injury during a lower blepharoplasty and inability to look up and out. One more time about the tiers, it's tri-layer. Um, the mucin layer or the bottom layer is from the goblet cells. There's a water protein layer from the lacrimal gland, which is the middle gland, and this has antimicrobial properties. And then the lipid oil layer or the top layer is from the mebomian glands, and this prevents evaporation. So they ask one of the questions in a previous year was what was the what leads to dry eye, failure of what? And it's it's this one, it prevents evaporation. There's some eye measurements that are important. A negative vector, or when the eye sticks out farther than the cheek, which is not aesthetically pleasing, has a higher risk for ectropion or lagophthalmus, scleral show and dry eyes after any kind of eyelid procedure. And then canthal tilt is the position of the lateral canthus relative to the medial canthus. The ideal is a positive canthal tilt of five to eight degrees. So you want the lateral higher than the medial. All right, we'll have some specific exam findings. Remember, this is review again. Horner syndrome, ptosis, meiosis, anhydrosis. Bell phenomenon is a protective mechanism when the eyes look up and out during eyelid closure. Um, some people, up to 15% of the population lacks this and they, they will have a higher risk of corneal ulceration after an eyelid procedure. There's the hearing test. And this is really important when you're evaluating eyelids prior to an eyelid surgery. So if a patient presents with ptosis, which we went over in our last lecture, you wanna do a hearing test, particularly if it's unilateral. And the reason why you wanna do this is because when one eye is totic, the signal to the brain is to elevate both eyelids. You wanna activate the ipsilateral Mueller's muscle with phenylephrine drops or with a patch, and that can reveal contralateral lid ptosis because the signal to elevate the lid will be decreased. Yeah, I feel like this comes up quite a bit. That's it does, hearing test, patch me. or alpha adrenergic drops, phenylephrine, et cetera, et cetera. And then, like I said, ptosis is in our previous lecture. So I know that's in a little bit of eyelid recon, but you can refer to that for ptosis. Hannah? We will take it from here and go over soft tissue reconstruction. So I'll first go over upper eyelid reconstruction. And this can be thought of into whether the defect involves less than a third of the eyelid, between a third and a half or greater than a half. So if the defect involves less than a third of the upper eyelid, then you can perform primary closure, especially in older patients that have significant laxity, you can really undergo primary closure if there's up to a 40% defect. And if there is tension, you can perform a lateral canthotomy. If the defect is between a third and a half, then you can consider doing a tensile semicircular flap and combine it with a lateral canthotomy to increase the potential closure to up to a 60% defect. This is a rotational myocutaneous flap and provides both anterior lamella only. Uh, next is the mustard flap. And this is a lower lid sharing flap that provides both anterior and posterior lamella for defects 30 to 60% of the central lid and contains lashes. And you may need a tensile flap to close the donor site. And this is based on the medial palpebral artery. And then finally is the sliding tarsoconjunctival flap. And this can provide medial and posterior lamella only. It's a one stage composite flap and requires anterior lamella coverage. And then for the flaps for greater than one half of the upper eyelid defects, and most commonly tested is probably the Cutler beard flap. And this is a lid switch from the lower eyelid. 
and you divide the flap at three to six weeks. So this is a two-stage procedure that provides both anterior and posterior lamella. Uh, there's no last re lash restoration and you will need uh, tarsal plate replacement. Next is the temporal forehead flap or Frick flap. And this provides anterior lamella coverage only. And it's only used when adequate tissue is unavailable and risk this flap risk injury to the temporal branch of the facial nerve. And then finally is the paramedian forehead flap. And this is useful for extensive defects, provides the anterior lamella only, and you will need posterior lamella in the form of cartilage or mucosal grafts. Uh, you wanna take us through lower eyelid? Sure. So the lower eyelid is split up in the same way, that are less than 25%, 25 to 50 and greater than 50. So if the lower eyelid has a less than 25% defect, you can move forward with primary closure. And remembering elderly patients that have significant laxity, they may undergo primary closure of up to 40% of the lower eyelid. So they'll give you that question stem or they'll give you that hint in the stem. For partial thickness defects up to 60%, but remember it's only anterior lamella. So you'll require posterior lamellar coverage. For greater than 50%, we have some similar flaps to what Hannah was talking about and a couple different ones. So Hughes flap is a posterior lamella only. This is greater than 50%. It's a two-stage procedure that can cover the entire lid and can be combined with a full thickness skin graft or trippier flap, which is an anterior lamellar flap. So this is good for lower lid defects. Remember Hughes flap greater than 50%, only posterior lamella. It's taken from the upper lid and you should remember to preserve four millimeters of upper tarsus for stability. The trippier flap is a bipedicled flap from the upper lid for entire length lower lid defects. So it's anterior lamella only. You will need posterior lamella. So you can combine this with a Hughes flap. The Mastardi flap is used for deep vertical defects of the entire lower lid and requires posterior lamellar coverage. So remember anterior lamellar only. The temporal frick flap can cover defects of the entire lid. And this is also anterior lamella only. The vertical myocutaneous cheek lift, which as you can imagine is also anterior lamella only, is one stage and it does require the posterior lamella and can be used for large lower lid defects. And then if you use one of these anterior lamellar options or myocutaneous flaps, there's some posterior lamellar graft options. Um, of course, you want to use like with like if that's your first choice, but if they don't give you a first choice for a Hughes flap, um, then other options include a palatal mucosal graft, a free tarsoconjunctival graft, nasal septum, buccal mucosa, or periosteal flap. The reason why these aren't first choice and we want like with like is there has been a question in a few years that had the palatal mucosal graft, but the problem is, is that this can lead to keratinization and corneal abrasion. So it's not your first choice. And then finally, the lower lid, if you have ectropion after a burn, you, even if it's early, you want to release the scar tissue and perform a full thickness skin graft. This is called cicatricial ectropion. And then involutional ectropion or lax skin, remember, is treated with a canthoplasty or canthopexy and wedge excision, and neurogenic is treated with gold weights. As far as skin graft options, skin graft from the contralateral eyelid is the first choice, particularly in elderly patients. And then your second choice options would be retroauricular or supraclavicular. And then we have a few miscellaneous. You want to go through that, Hannah? Yes, I will. I'll take us home. So there have been a few questions about gold weights and just know that the gold weight should be placed superficial to the levator aponeurosis and the tarsal plate. The inferior portion of the weight should be just a few millimeters above the lash line. Which was tested on its two to four millimeters. The weight should be centered over the junction of the medial and central one-thirds of the eyelid and medial limbus. 
Acolymboma is a congenital defect of the eyelid, iris, retina, choroid optic disc, and can range from a small notch to an ocular cleft. And it's related to a Tessier 6 or Treacher Collins syndrome. So that'll be the end of our eyelid talk. And thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you. We'll see you in the next one. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.